Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. You have your Bibles? Let's open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. And we will take verses 32 through 37. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. At verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Please be seated. Warned, that's the title of this morning's message. We are finishing up our end times consideration in the Gospel of Mark. No word of Jesus is casual. Everything he says means something and is important. And he had pinpointed for us, beginning in verse 28 to 31, some of the signs that would be signaling the nearing of the great tribulation period. And he did this through the fig tree, which we identified as Israel. Israel is the time clock, or the uh, it's, it's the clock to watch, uh, the calendar, Israel. But here in verses 32 through 37, he is warning believers to be ready since they know the season. This has to do with the rapture of the church. Because he had already made clear that once the abomination of desolation takes place, there's 1,290 days after that before the end comes. So there would be really no need to warn as he is warning in this section. This has everything to do with the church. Strong delusion, including madness or insanity, awaits those that are disinterested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing this, we're seeing some of this insanity in our time. I mean, let's get rid of the police. A criminal mind came up with that one. And it is just, it's insane. The whole, you know, the transgender thing, it's a total insanity. Uh, there's a warning that comes with this statement to Christians. There are times when a Christian is uh, uh, has a family member that is engaged in some sin and feels that they should be the advocate for that family member when the pastor targets that sin. Don't you do that. Yeah, we, you know, we love the sinner, but we're not going to sweep under the rugs the things that God tells us to bring out into the light and to deal with. And Romans 2 talks about that. Watch out that you're not an advocate for sinners, regardless of how much you love them. And we see, we see a, a Christian may have uh, a, a great um, 
be stand, stand against homosexuality until their child says that they're struggling with this. And sometimes that those parents will switch teams and become advocates. And this is Satan. And this is madness. And it should not be. This insanity that uh, we are experiencing, of course, is authored by Satan, but it is allowed by God and controlled by him. God said, you're free to be nuts, but not out of my control. Deuteronomy 28, verse 28, Yahweh will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. That's pretty thorough. And what that tells us, God speaking to the Jews, you want to mess, he's saying, you want to mess around with your relationship with me, the outcome's going to be insanity. Well, if he can do that with the Jews, he can do it with anybody. This is a, a characteristic of his sovereignty. In 1 Kings, there was that prophet Micaiah, and you can't help but love this prophet. And the wicked king Ahab, who had married Satan's daughter Jezebel, uh, Ahab uh, d- decided that it, when Jehoshaphat, the good king, came to visit him, that he was going to use this good king and his army as a duo to go against uh, the enemies of the people and take back land. And Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he just had no ability. He, had no, he lacked discernment. He would buddy up with the wrong people, and he'd pay for it. And uh, the Lord would have to come down and help him. But anyway, uh, when uh, the false prophets came out and paraded themselves before Ahab and said, Yes, king, go take back the land for Israel. God is with you. Yahweh is with you. They weren't even the prophets of Yahweh. And Jehoshaphat said, Well, isn't there a prophet of a true prophet in Israel? And, and Ahab says, Yeah, there's one. And I hate him. Because he never says anything good about me. You see the insanity? Well, do something good. Earn it. You're not entitled to the blessings of God's prophets. You have to be worthy of of such accolades or such good prophecies in in his case. Anyway, they they summon the prophet, Micaiah, and they tell him, listen, don't say anything bad. And he says, I'm going to say what God gives me. And he gets there, and they say, well, Micaiah, what does the Lord have to say? And it has to have been in a sarcastic tone. The prophet says, oh, yeah, fine, go ahead. You're going to win. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. Because how else would the king have detected that he was being sarcastic when he said, go, God is with you? It had to be in the inflection, the tone. Well, of course, (laughs) he says, see what I mean? The king says he never says anything good. But then Micaiah the prophet said, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to illustrate it for you in a parable. Now, the events that he then depicts for the king are not to be taken literal, but they are dramatized to make his point. And he said the Lord wanted to put a, uh, uh, to, to send Ahab to war so that he could judge him and have him killed. And he asked, uh, you know, his messengers, he said, how are we going to do this? And one came up with this idea, and one came up with that idea, and another came up. And this is what he said. Uh, Well, he said, I will be a lying spirit to him. I will tell him what he wants to hear, even though it's not true. And the Lord, in the prophet's parable, granted this permission 
And that is exactly what happened. And then we pick up this part. Uh, Therefore, the prophet says to the king, Look, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and Yahweh has declared disaster against you. God is in control. And God is, the prophet was saying to the king, You are following lies. And there's going to be a deadly consequence for you because you follow these lies. And this is our message to the world. Uh, Of course, the king goes off and he is killed in battle or as a result of battle. And the prophet's word comes true. And much of uh, earth's population will resent God for behaving as God, as they do now. Uh, Anybody else can be God. Any false God has the right to be God, but the only true God cannot be God, according to the the response of many, many people through the ages. Well, God is going to give the people who reject him the person behind the lies that they cherish and love so much. The lying spirit. They're going to gobble up the lie because they have no love for the truth, as was the case with Ahab the king. The prophet told him right out, a lying spirit. You believe the lying spirit. But here a prophet of God speaks to you because you don't care for what he is saying. He has to be rejected. Well, at the time of the great tribulation period, when God gives those living at that time, the person that they want, Satan, uh, not all of them, they will be converts, but most of them, it seems, will, will be following the lie. We pick it up in Revelation 6, how these people think. The madness, the craziness. Revelation 6, verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And what the prophet is saying, he's saying, I'm revealing this to you. That when the judgment of God falls on this earth in this great tribulation age, there are going to be those that would rather hide from the Creator than repent, than turn to Him. They will have no excuse because the word is here and it will be going forth. This is the madness. This is very serious business. And so as we talk about the coming of the the, the rapture, the removal, the evacuation of the church, we have to do so as those who are sober-minded, who are telling the world, listen, there is an insanity available to you that can make you a functioning kook. That's what they become. They can, be, they can stay in their lane on the roadways. They can still go to work and function and build things. They can work in hospitals. You know the tremendous care that is available today in the hospitals. They can do all these things. They can function even though they are spiritually insane. Well, who's going to do something about this? Well, that's what we're here for. And we Christians should be praying, Lord, put me in front of somebody to preach the gospel. It seems to me that less and less folks are coming to Christ. I mean, maybe they are, and I'm just not hearing about it. Not like I get a newsletter from heaven. Hey, Rick, here's the tally for this week. 
But this is, this is something that every born-again believer should be concerned with. Because we are not saying, Lord, rapture us and too bad for them. We are saying, Lord, let us take with us as many of them as we can get. And, you know, if God put you into a bank vault and said, you've got five minutes to bring out as much cash as you can, you'd be going crazy in there. (laughs) And God is saying, I've put you in a loony bin, this planet, and I want you to grab out of it as many people as you can. You say, well, I can't. I I, I try sharing the gospel. I don't want to hear it. And the Lord says, just stay, pray to me. And that's what we're going to get. And we just stood and read that. Heed, watch, pray. Pray for what? That they would be able to escape the hell that is taught by God uh, that awaits those who flat out reject him. And so with that brief introduction, we've got about two minutes left. I could probably pack this church if I cut the sermons down to ten minutes. But anyway, verse 32 But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now again, this is the rapture, which we know to be the miraculous removal of the church. And the Lord doesn't, uh, of course, get into that. uh, The existence of the church at the time he spoke these words was still not here yet. There was no such thing as a New Testament church as we know it when he spoke these words. He will leave it after Pentecost for his apostles to uh, begin its teachings and then future disciples to develop it. But the church, as we know it, has emerged from Judaism. And had it not been for Gentiles joining the church, because it started again with mostly all Jews, it likely would have been lost to realignment to Judaism. And and, and Judaism didn't give up. It kept trying to bring the Christians back in. This is part of the problem in Galatia when Peter and, and Barnabas reacted to those who came from Jerusalem sent by James. And all of a sudden, they didn't want to be with the Gentiles. They stayed with the Jews. And Paul, he went right to guns on this. This is not little. You're killing the church. You're going to make it just like Judaism. And, of course, he says, I rebuked Peter to his face because he needed to be rebuked. And and Peter received that rebuke. And uh, so this, uh, what I'm discussing here is the the church, the New Testament church, what it is. We know what the times are going to be because Christ has told us. 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, the first four verses. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Pause there. Well, Christ said, when you see the abomination of desolation, you better get out of Jerusalem. And this is how many days you have. There's no peace and safety there. So um, the distinct, the, the point I'm making is what Paul is talking about here is the rapture of the church. And that's when he says, well, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. That would be the great tribulation period. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, 
and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. So Christians are supposed to know, okay, we're getting close. We've got to ramp it up now. And uh, this is, of course, what the preceding verses were were all about. Jesus laying out this end times uh, scenario. Earthlings will be shocked when Christians are extracted. But they will have their hands filled with a lot of other things. And there will be power plays and wars and natural disasters. And these things will will keep going and, and escalate. And it will be a time, as Jesus said, such as the world has never known. Uh, He says here, not even the angels in heaven. It's classified. The day of the Lord uh, that ignites the tribulation period. Once that rapture comes, it starts. Uh, He says, nor the sun. Well, this actually is a very easy answer. You may be saying, how could Jesus not know when the day of the rapture is? If he is God the Son. And the answer is quite simple. When he spoke these words. These are the days of his self-imposed limitation. Uh, His humanity. He restricted himself. In many ways. And and we certainly. Well for instance they crucified him. You see that was a restriction. That he placed upon himself. I can call 12 legions of angels. In fact I don't even need the angels. He, He could have done it that way. But he did not. And what he is saying to us, I am submitting myself so that I can save those who will come to me. His deity was never put on hold. He was always God. From the, from the time in Mary to the birth, always God. But his sovereignty is sort of like God tied his hands behind his, his, one, behind his back sort of thing. Uh, For example, Christ was not ubiquitous. He was not everywhere at the same time. But if he wanted to find something out, all he had to do was ask his father. In fact, when when he says the son doesn't know, if these disciples knew what we knew, if I was standing in that group knowing what I know now, I would have said, well, can you ask the father? Because he's going to tell you and then tell us. Uh, But, of course, it didn't play out that way because I wasn't there. Uh, So... Uh, the son does not know in his humanity. He would suffer in his humanity. Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 25. Uh, but first, speaking of himself, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so in his humanity, he suffered, but never in his glory. After the resurrection, is no more getting to Christ. Hebrews nine twenty-eight. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Uh, So much for those who think that he is repeatedly uh, suffering. Uh, That is a lie. That is unbiblical. It is against what is clearly taught. He continues in Hebrews 9. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So he humbled himself. In the form of a servant, Paul writes to the Philippians. And there was a progression. It was a development in Christ. As he, Luke tells us, he grew in stature with, with men. Uh, you know, had, had you not known I was about my father's business. And there was this development. And as you travel through the New Testament, you, you begin to discover 
the difference between the days of his humanity and the days of his glory. And I, I like to think that I, I stayed on this a bit when we went through the Gospel of Luke. And so these disciples are going to ask him this question again after his resurrection. And then, of course, he is now in his glorified form. He is not uh, limited. And Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Sort of asking the same question a different way. <laughs> uh, maybe to like, uh, you know, catch him off guard a bit. Of course, I'm not sure that's what happened, but I like to see it that way. Anyway, and he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He could have said, I told you, I don't know. But he does know at this point because this self-imposed limitation is gone now. Uh, he is not admitting here to being ignorant, but subject to the Father. And uh, that having dawned humanity on him. That humanity of Christ was dismissed at Calvary. Father, into your hands of commitment. That was the end of it. Now he is the Christ that walked with them. As Paul said, we knew him according to the flesh. We know him no more. The Christ Jesus that they walked with through Galilee was in his glorified state much more. And this is why when he appears to John in the Revelation, John says, I fell down dead before him. And he touched me and told me to fear not. And so there you have another picture of this changed relationship, which he eased into those disciples. So that after his resurrection, he sort of appeared to them, and they were like, who is this guy? You know, they, they weren't sure. Uh, it's the Lord, you know, and uh, that development is clear. Mary Magdalene didn't really care about the development. She just loved him. John and the others hesitated a little bit. Mary Magdalene grabbed hold of him. And of course we know, uh, you know don't cling to me. I, I'm not, don't get used to me being here, Mary. I, I'm, I'm not staying. But these are uh, pictures of our Lord and how he conducted business when he was here. And he insisted that his followers cultivate an attitude of alertness concerning his return. Now, again, as they're listening to this, they're not putting it all together, but they're going to be grabbing hold of the things he said once he ascends into heaven, and they've gone through the crucifixion, resurrection with, with him, as far as witnesses of it all. Daniel, and he dealt, Christ dealt with this in verse 14, when he talks about the desolation, quoting Daniel, and from uh, Daniel 12, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, that three-and-a-half-year period of the great tribulation of Jacob's trouble. So the world will be going through tribulation, and then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Israel will really go through it. Um, uh, the day of the Lord uh, that will then not, it does not include his church, starts at the rapture, and uh, lasts for over a thousand years. Even when Christ returns, that is still under the umbrella of that prophecy, the day of the Lord. It's a very broad prophecy. The prophets, they neither spoke nor wrote about the church. It was that foreign of a concept. It was held back. 
and, and rightfully so, because it was hard enough for the Jewish Christians to begin to depart from Judaism. That's why we have Paul's letter to the Hebrews saying, stop it. You're no longer Jewish as far as religion goes. You're Christians now. And if you continue this, the cross of Christ won't profit you. It is obsolete. And he goes into Melchizedek and Abraham before Levi was even born. And it's just quite remarkable how he shuts down this uh, uh, having an idea of, of, of this hybrid religion called Judaism, a mixture uh, of uh, the Judaizers, sorry, not Judaism. Judaizers were trying to merge Christianity with Judaism. Hope I didn't lose you on that, but we've got more here. Verse 33, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Now, I should say, you might go into your Bible uh, commentaries or study Bibles and find a different perspective on the end time scenario. Uh, that's fine. These, these are not always that critical uh, to, you know, of an issue as to how you see the timeline. Um, I don't share a lot of views about the end times with a lot of good men of God. Um, uh, but again, for instance, uh, some struggle with placing this event in the tribulation, and, and I just don't see how you could make that fit. This has to be to the church. Christ has already mentioned to them about what's going to happen. So where he says here in verse 33, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. In Luke 21, he said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. And to stand before the Son of Man, which is very broad in that statement because it includes those who will die long before the end times. The the thing you get out of that verse, I think primary, is to stand before the Son of God. Whether you die in the tribulation or are raptured or long before the rapture, that is the objective, to stand before the Lord Jesus. Now, how could he say such a thing unless he was God? I mean, imagine if, if I said to you, you know, uh, you just can't be, be ready to be able to stand before me when you die. It would be blasphemous. You would have to be God to be able to say to someone, they are going to stand before you. And when he says the Son of Man, he's talking about his humanity, his identification with sinners. Uh, the days of his limitation. That is what that whole meaning was about, the Son of Man. Meaning that God came uh, uh, as, as a human being, born of a virgin, and humbled himself uh, for our sakes. Um, we are not to forget about that fig tree. That's a critical lesson to end times. Keep our eyes on Israel. And that's what he says, take heed. Then he says, uh, well, take heed means to think. Something that comes hard to some Christians, it seems. We're so ready for the miraculous, for the supernatural, for the emotional. And, uh, I mean, I love to feel emotionally lifted as well as the next guy, but that does not give me the right to believe in things just because I like them. I have to find out if they're true. You know, all the Christians were stirred up over the blood moon thing. Oh, boy, oh, boy. And it was just, look, he gave us the fig tree. I don't agree with those applications. Yeah, the moon will turn to blood, as the prophet Joel and others had had said it will. But uh, I don't agree with the application. 
not to say that those who made it are somehow not saved, and, and I, that's not what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with, we have to be careful uh, when someone begins to talk about end times, if they can connect it to the scriptures uh, throughout. Well, anyway, it's, it's tricky. First Thessalonians 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. No Christian should be caught off guard when it comes to the rapture of the church and the end times. Because, again, the lessons have been taught. So he says, watch. That means work. Those of you who've been in the military, you've stood guard duty, you know that it's a lot of work. I mean, you just like after the first 10 minutes, you're ready to leave. Uh, but you have to stay. I don't know what it is today, knowing with what they're doing, the sissification of the military. Uh, they probably stand guard duty for eight minutes now. But for me, it was four hours walking around a building. Uh, and, and you, do, you know, nobody showed up, so they didn't get the satisfaction of shooting anyone. Uh, anyway, that, I strike that from the record. That was not nice. Well, but if they deserved it. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, guard duty is work. We, you know, laziness does not bring glory to the Lord. Ever. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. You sleep on guard duty and get caught as court-martial. There's no nonsense about those kind of things. At least where I was, I don't know, maybe you served somewhere where they kind of, uh, you know, took a nap with you. But, uh, Watch, he says again, First Thessalonians five three. For when I say, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes. So be ready for these things. That's why I'm telling you. He's saying to us, why do some people have a problem with God being intolerant of people who are intolerant of Him? I mean, atheism is one of the most insane things on earth. And now today's atheists are militant atheists. They're not satisfied with live and let live. Okay, fine, you believe in Christ. No, they are going after Christians trying to dismantle their belief. They are writing long pages. They have blogs. They are writing books. They are targeting Christians. And the question again is, why do some people have a problem with God being intolerant with people who are intolerant of him? So they're upset that he's going to have this wrath against sinners who refuse him. God's not fooling around. He said this on the subject of the end times. Remember Lot's wife? And just left it like that. He expects us to figure it out when there's enough information. To connect the dots because they're there. And so he says, watch. Then he says, pray. Well, before I get to the pray, one other verse I want to talk about in connection to take heed and watch. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So everybody's got a way out. It's not as though God is saying, I'm just going to judge sinners and you're stuck. There's nothing you can do about it. No, God says there's a way out through Jesus Christ. He's not appointed us for wrath. And that's what the extraction is all about. He says, pray. 
Pray means to serve with God, not apart from God. You know, Martha was just serving until she got corrected. She was serving in her own strength. She had made the minors become major. Mary kept the majors the majors. She sat at the feet of the Lord. Jesus said, you know what? I can get food somewhere else. I don't really need you, Martha, to make a meal for me. I, I, I will eat it if you bring it. But understand, it is the preaching of the word that is paramount. And Mary has chosen this, and I'm not taking it away from her. Mary, um, Martha never <laughs> complained again to the Lord about such things. Uh, so the word uh, is part of it. Praying is essential. Serving is critical. Getting up when you've been beaten down is routine. There's not a Christian that does not have to deal with sin in themselves and sin in others. And it's ongoing. And if you're waiting to reach the state of perfection in this life, it's not going to happen. However, you can be matured and developed and learn how to deal with these things in a biblical way that is pleasing to the Lord. And this is why some of the sins of the New Testament saints are captured for us, but many of them of the Old Testament saints. Again, look at King David. I mean, he's an old man. He's written so much of the Bible and in the Psalms, and he's still falling on his face. And God is still forgiving him. But there are great consequences to his sin, too. And I don't think any of us want to have the consequence of sin upon us. And so we strive to be Christ-like. Well, to do that, you're going to have to be in fellowship with him and praying is a part of it. I pray primarily at this stage in my life because I don't have a choice. I have this relationship with Christ. And even when I feel like pouting and just, you know what, I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't know why God has done this. I don't like that he's done this. I'm not saying anything. And they're saying, you know, I'm praying to him because I know him. He is my God and I am his servant. And I can't help but talk to him, no matter what. And I talk to him about a lot of you, too. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, it's too much to pray for. It's just too much. I try to get in, sneak some prayers in for every meal. Uh, or anytime I eat something, I try to offer up a, a prayer. And uh, I, Paul says, I make mention of you in my prayers. Because it was just too many people. But it counts. And the righteous, uh, they willfully have no choice but to pray. So I encourage you, talk to God. Uh, verse 34, he says, It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Well, this, again, in the upper room, he tells them, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and I will receive you. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. And so this, this little parable that he's given, this parabolic illustration, he says it's like a man going on a journey to a far country. Well, from the perspective of his disciples, heaven was a far country. Not to, to God, of course. He would be gone. 
be gone for a long time. He's telling his church. At the end, he's saying, what I say to you, I say to all. We read that when we stood and read in verse 37. What I say to you, I say to all. Watch. Well, he's been gone 2,000 years, and he has never walked back. Watch. There's so much work that gets done in that. He says, who, uh, uh, like a man who's going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants. That's the church age. This is exactly what he's talking about. Nothing else fits so smoothly. In Luke 19, in a parable, speaking about his servants, serving while the master was away, he says, do business till I come. The old King James, I like its language more in this verse. It says, occupy until I come. Because I think of an occupying force. Uh, Anyway, we are now in the times of the Gentiles which produced the church age, the age of grace, by faith in the word. We're not in the age of miracles. And as I've been saying, the fig tree signals the approaching conclusion to the church age. The time of the Gentiles, it began in, well, 586 years before Christ came. The glory departed from Israel. Jerusalem was trodden by the Babylonian army. When Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Jerusalem, Ezekiel chapter 10, he talks about the Shekinah, the presence of the Lord, reluctantly and in phases, departing the temple until it was gone. And uh, this is the age where the Gentiles have domination over Jerusalem, over um, Israel. And though that is now going away, Uh, It's still there to some degree, but it is nowhere like it was before 1948. Uh, Before 1948, the Jews just had no say-so. Now they're a sovereign state. Uh, God terminated when when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem 586 years before uh, before Christ was born. God terminated their secular supremacy in the region. Remember, David conquered Solomon and they held all the people in check and they paid them money. Well, not only that, both the king, the office of the king and the priesthood were lost to Israel. And the Gentile domination began. Now, they got back some of the priesthood. It largely stayed corrupted. But uh, in Christ's day, the priesthood was corrupted. Luke 21, verse 24 And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, the times of the Gentiles started back when Nebuchadnezzar trampled Jerusalem. And they really never got back their kingdom. They have not had a king on the throne in Jerusalem since that time. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness. I'm not getting emotional. I'm suppressing a cough, if you must know. But anyway, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's where we are right now. This is the church age. Israel, the church age started with, of course, Pentecost. But the times of the Gentiles started before that with Nebuchadnezzar. 
Israel will be fully restored when Messiah returns. Gentile domination stops completely at Armageddon. So the fullness of the Gentiles uh, will last, will have seven years left uh, at the rapture. Then God will again begin to speak to the world through the Jews. Romans 11 verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The, The deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I hope none of you believe that kingdom theology stuff. That's so unbiblical. It just kind of gets rid of Israel. It denies Israel from being Israel. Just madness. I don't want to deal with that right now. Really, I don't want to deal with it ever. It's so dumb. But a lot of people like it. It's uh, Satan. Because it makes you an enemy of God's chosen people as his time clock, which is Israel. The Greek language, uh, the Greek has been the language of Scripture ever since the apostles. Before that, it was the Hebrew, for the most part, with some exceptions in Daniel and Ezra. The Jews lost their secular supremacy, as I mentioned, when Nebuchadnezzar came. They lost their spiritual supremacy when they murdered Christ, when they had him crucified. And until the rapture, and God, oh, well, after the seven-year clock starts at the rapture, and then until then, uh, the church is going to be, uh, let me clear, clean that up. If I've confused you, don't raise your hand. At the rapture, the church age stops. And then... The Jews begin to move into the forefront again of carrying the scripture. Once upon a time, if anyone had anything to say with authority from God, he had, it was said through the Jew, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they were mostly Jews. Uh, You could say that Enoch was not a Jew and Noah was not a Jew. You can You can really cut it down and get kind of tangled up there. But overall, the scripture comes to us. The stories about those men come to us from a Jewish man named Moses. Moses is the one that has given us the book of Genesis. Without that Jewish prophet, there would be no knowledge of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that we have. This is not anti-Semitic. This is biblical. If God spoke to men in those days... He spoke in Hebrew, but after Pentecost, he began to speak in Greek, in the Greek language, in the language of the Gentiles, the church age. It is a parenthesis in God's dealing with mankind, and it ends at the rapture. Once the church age is complete, the focus of God and his dealings with sinners and saved alike reverts to the nation Israel. And that's why we see them again the Two witnesses in Revelation, the 144,000, and then many Gentile converts that will come from their preaching as well as Jewish converts. And so for the past 2,000 years, if you wanted to know about God, uh, it has been through the church. But prior to that, it had come through Israel. Uh, John's Gospel 
chapter 1 says something very interesting because the Gentiles came from the world of visible gods when they joined the church. They renounced their false gods that they could see, their little idols, and they came into the church. Israel, uh, the Jews in, in Israel, they did not believe in a visible God. But when Christ came, Everybody could see God. We see him in the scriptures in this way. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. I find these things very exciting and easy to understand. I find them a little tricky to preach. Because you have to factor in how much other stuff have the people heard and how many questions are you going to get at the end of the sermon that are saying, well, yeah, well, I don't agree with that, or I see it this way, or I never heard that before. Are you out of your mind? Yeah, so that kind of makes it a, a little uh, complicated, but not, not too much. And so, our Lord Jesus assumed the role of the Savior when he came to save our souls, after the resurrection, he resumed the role as ruler. And so when he came, Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life ransom for many, the days of his limitations, the days of his humanity, when he subjected himself to things <coughs> that he will never subject himself to ever again. We are not in the age of miracles. We're in the age of faith through the word of God. Not the age of sight, but the age of faith. And they overcame him by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb because they did not love their lives unto the death. And this will be uh, said of those tribulation martyrs. And so we have a special beatitude for the church from Jesus Christ after his resurrection. After his resurrection, he gave a beatitude that's just for the church, really, in this sense. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 29. Blessed are those, there's the beatitude, who have not seen, yet have believed. He said, more blessed. He put emphasis on it. The Thomas, it's great you can see me. But they're coming, those after me, and I'm not going to walk around parading my wounds and showing everybody. They're going to have to believe by faith. And that faith has got to be anchored in the word that I am entrusting my apostles with in the age of the church, the age of grace. And when you find Christians who can't believe without miracles, you usually find um, kooky Christians. Uh, and then it comes, just be careful. It's okay to be emotionally in love with Jesus Christ. But you cannot have your emotions dictate to you uh, what the scripture says. Uh, faith and uh, intelligence is, is necessary. You have to l learn these things. Anyway, uh, don't, some people are afraid of that word in intelligence. They think it means you have to be really smart. No, it just means you've got to use your brains in the way I'm using it. And to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. And so as going back to the, the beginning of the verse 34... It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and, <coughs> excuse me, I'll wait so they can clean that up on the tape when they make it ready for the radio. Okay, 
Like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. And if you come here and you listen to a sermon that lasts for 50, 55 minutes on a Sunday morning, it's because that's what it takes to go through a section of scripture and try to hit key points. Just think of how many points I'm leaving out. We'd be here another two hours. So, uh, and to each his work. He commands the doorkeeper. We... uh, we are the ones that are entrusted with this great responsibility. Uh, we must not embrace the words of Jesus concerning salvation only, and at the same time, ignore his other words. So if he tells you to, you know, to be saved, you, you renounce your sins, you come to me, and you make your confession known. Okay, we, we get that, we want that. But what about when he says... I'm telling you to watch. We have no right to say, no, I'll just keep the salvation. That heeding, praying, watching stuff's too much work for me. No word of Jesus is casual. And we have to take it all. We continue now, verse 35. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. That covers pretty much the whole day. He's pouring it on pretty thick. Again, he says, watch knowing that it is not for those that are going through the tribulation, but those leading up to the tribulation. And how do I watch as a Christian? Oh, I abide in Christ. I try to do everything that he tells me to do as best I can. And when I, again, when Satan trips me up, when my flesh trips me up, I get back and I go go at it again. But I do not become an apostate. I do not become one that says, I tried Christianity and I couldn't pull it off, so I'm leaving the faith now. I mean, again, Charles Templeton was one not too long. We've had a few of them, you know, these Christian authors, and now they've renounced their Christianity. Why do they think they have to announce that they have renounced? Who cares? Why do you think your voice is so important that if you leave Christ, you have to tell everybody? Because Satan is pulling the strings now. You've sold out. You've given yourself over to the enemy. And if you want to walk around and hide behind, well, they were never saved, then you have at that. Because if, if it is that fragile a situation, how do I know I'm saved? I know I'm saved because I abide in Christ. I believe he's my Lord. And nobody can take that from me. No one will snatch me out of his hand. And I'm not jumping. And so we have to have this sort of a militant attitude towards the things that are against salvation, that are against Christ, that is abiding in Christ. He had a militant attitude. Christ would go into a synagogue, you see somebody that was in need of a miracle. And he knew it would bother them to do it on the Sabbath day, so he did it. He picked fights. Now, I'm not saying we should go out here, you know, with a can of spinach and, and pick fights and start turning over tables. But I am saying we should have an element of militancy in our faith that says, I'm not going to take that from you. Because when I hear somebody telling me all the reasons why I shouldn't believe in Christ, I know that's the voice of the devil. I have no doubt about that. And there are times when, again, Christ allows things and I, uh, you know, what other people have to suffer. And I don't have the answers to those Individual problems, but I have the answer to the individual God. And I am good with that. You show me a church that does not believe 
that the Bible is the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, given to us, and I'll show you Babylon. You show me a church that's still calling itself Christian, calling itself a church, but doesn't believe God's Word, there you have Babylon, the great harlot. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It is profitable. You get something out of God's word. For doctrine, that is right thinking. For reproof, that is correcting wrong thinking. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You either believe that or you don't. And if you struggle with it, that's better than rejecting it. John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested, he's speaking to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Huh. So in this important conversation with God, what's important to Jesus Christ, because he knows this is important to his Father, and he knows this is going to be recorded and preserved, and that we're going to read it and learn from it. What's the big deal is they've kept your word, as he says to the church in Philadelphia, because you have held to my word. I spare you from the tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. You have, again, Satan doesn't want you to believe this. He wants you to doubt. Uh, he does not go down or away without a fight. That's why James says resist the devil, because he doesn't go any other way. If you don't resist him, he's going to dominate you. Verse 36 he says, let's coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. Again, court martial offense. It will be shocking when Christ comes. Uh, the now absent Lord is going to return. And he gave a parable about the ten virgins. And he said the foolish ones took no extra oil. They just had the oil in their lamps. That's all they took. And then when they burned up their oil, because of their lack of foresight, because of their lack of care for what was coming and the possibilities, they began to go to the others and ask them for oil, making them feel guilty for saying, no, then I won't have enough for us. But the point is, in that parable, they all slumbered and slept, but still five were ready and the other five were foolish. It was dark. He was going to take the bride home. The bride is the church. The virgins were those who were invited. The oil is the Holy Spirit, the filling on the inside that gives the light. Uh, the slumber and that they all slumbered, that's the flesh. The wise are ready on arrival. Imagine if the fire truck showed up not ready on arrival. Or the ambulance shows up not ready on arrival. Or whoever else, the police. Oh, I forgot, we're outlawing them. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. He repeats this word three times in this short section for em emphasis. Luke's gospel, I'm almost done. Chapter 21, verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. The end's coming. You need to be ready. 
Well, that concludes our end times analysis in the book of Mark. We will, going forward, be doing less teaching and more preaching because now we're coming to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, you've laid out uh, quite a, a lot of information about the end times, which in itself is a message to us to pay attention, to look into it, to give our time and effort and prayers to understanding whatever you have to say. And we are very grateful for this and very dependent upon you. You have given invitations through your church, through your believers, through the scripture, for unbelievers to come to you, that they would avoid the judgment, that they would avoid standing before you without forgiveness of their sin. If you are listening to me here in the church or you are watching online and you have not opened your heart to Jesus Christ, but yet you know God is calling you, then you have to make the decision and make the next step. You have to respond to the invitation. To do that, here's an example of prayer to make so that God will receive you if you are sincere. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I come to you. I know you are calling me, inviting me. And I am responding now. I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to be not only the one that saves me from judgment for my sin, but also the one who lords over my life, that I may abide with you. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, in earnest, and may, Lord, you, may you bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.